Welcome to Knowing Nature, a podcast about environmental education. In this podcast, I speak with folks from around the environmental sector about their experiences and perspectives on helping people to connect with the natural world. In this episode, I'm speaking with Jack Ashby, Assistant Director of the Museum of Zoology at the University of Cambridge. We talk about his recent book, Platypus Matters, and some of the themes within it, including the history of natural history collecting and why it's important to think carefully when we're communicating about animals which may seem strange at first to us or our audiences, because the way we talk about these animals can have unintended consequences. Joining me today is Jack Ashby, Assistant Director of the University Museum of Zoology in Cambridge and author of Platypus Matters, which was published in May of 2022. Hello and welcome to the podcast, or welcome back to the podcast, Jack. Hi, Victor. Thanks for having me. Um, so it's been about a year since the last time you were on the show, and since then you've published Platypus Matters, uh, which features, of course, the amazing platypus, as the title suggests, uh, and also the other egg-laying mammals and the marsupials. So there's loads of great information about all of these mammals in the book. Uh, but that's not actually the part of the book or the themes of the book that I've, I've asked you on the show to talk about today. Uh, but before we dive into some of the other themes, I was wondering if you had maybe like a favorite um, fact factoid about these uh, animals that you, you mentioned in the book. <clears throat> wow, I could choose literally hundreds of things. You put me on the spot there. I mean, platypuses are objectively the best animals that have ever evolved. I guess that counts as a factoid, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, they, <laughs> factually, they are one of the only animals, sorry, one of the only mammals that can detect electricity, one of the only mammals that produce venom, the only mammals produce eggs and the only mammals that do all three of those things. Um, so I think that makes them, uh, you know, pretty awesome. In every regard. Yeah, they, they basically can, can do it all. I was uh, just revisiting things in preparation for today and was reminded of another factoid about the, the platypus is that they dig their burrows in a really neat way where they don't um, like kick out spoil from their tunnels they just sort of push it into the the walls which is a fabulous adaptation a, a way of doing that rather than needing to shove all this dirt out of their burrows yeah i think that counts as a fact not a factoid um <laughs> yeah it's it's great because it means firstly platypuses which are only you know 40 50 centimeters long um the females at least and they're the ones that dig the long burrows they can dig burrows that are certainly 10 meters long but realistic estimates have said that they could grow to 30 meters long. Now, if you think about it, a lot of animals that dig burrows, like you say, have to kick the soil out behind them. If you're digging a 30 meter long burrow, or even a 10 meter long burrow, that means you have to move all of that soil all the way back to the entrance um, to do it. And that's obviously energetically really inefficient, but also it makes a massive spoil heap that, you know, like you think of a, a badger set or a fox's set, the most noticeable thing about them is the spoil heap rather than the hole. So platypuses' holes, uh, burrows, are much harder to spot than most, most burrows. It's, yeah, they're a sensible way of doing things. And because they're kind of so muscly, what they do is they kind of spin their bodies, uh, twist their bodies in their burrows, which tamps down the soil into the walls. Um, so it's, yeah, it's, 
I, I like it as a burrowing technique. Yeah, I'm just imagining this thing spinning around in its hole and sort of shoving dirt into the sides. It's just, yeah, really, really amazing. For more facts like this, people can can buy your book, but the information about the animals is not actually what I've asked you on to, to talk about, as I mentioned. Um, so the, the themes of the book that I wanted to talk about today is, is something, are themes that I think are potentially really useful to lots of other environmental educators, people who work in natural history museums, um, like myself now, uh, again. And you, you touch on it all throughout the book is, um, first off, the, the way in which the history of natural history collecting shaped how Europeans understood animals from other parts of the world. And of course, in this book, particularly animals from Australia. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about, about that, like how collecting influenced the way in which Europeans understood the Australian fauna. Yeah, again, that's a, that's a really big topic. And, and we could talk about that from a historical point of view, but also how how historical collecting has shaped the way we see animals ourselves today. And, and that's not just because of how people describe them in the past, but also obviously the specimens that we see in museums today are the same specimens that were collected you know, 200 years ago, potentially. So we're still being influenced by those representations of species. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of things you could talk about, but I guess if you, if you think about it fundamentally, most people doing science on Australian animals uh, in the late 18th and most of the 19th century, well, they were actually in Europe. So they weren't, you know, these are people that had never seen the live animals. All they had to go on what was what was being sent from Australia. So a lot of the ways that we, that they encouraged people to think about the species were based on museum specimens or at least dead specimens um, and also uh, the descriptions of naturalists and other people in Australia at the time and of course those animals weren't all sent whole so they they there's so many le like levels of human of opportunities for humans to affect the end result if you like on the way of, of going from there is a living animal in its environment to it being killed to someone doing something to that dead animal before they send it off to someone else who's never seen the animal move. I guess we can break it down into a, a couple of different parts. I guess first thing is is like the nuts and bolts, the mechanics of of collecting, and uh, at the time how that was done. Right, like w there wasn't refrigerated air freight, so you couldn't you know send things back, or you know you couldn't. It was very difficult to send live animals certainly back and forth. So could you maybe tell us some of the ways in which that influenced the way in which these European scientists initially understood these animals. Sure. And just so just to kind of frame all that. So Europe, Europe Britain invaded uh, Australia in 1788. So yeah, like you say, this is pretty, you know, pre-industrial certainly. Though interestingly, live kangaroos are relatively common in Europe um, by the by the end of the 18th century. So we did have live kangaroos, um, but not many other species. The first platypus arrived in Europe in 1799, a specimen, and it came not as a dry skin, but actually as a whole, or no more as whole, preserved um, animal in a barrel of alcohol uh, that had been shipped by the um, governor of, of New South Wales, John Hunter, um, to uh, the Literary and Philosophical Society in, in Newcastle in northeast of England. And there's a great story of how this barrel came off the ship. It actually came via London, but it came off the ship in Newcastle and this woman was carrying it to the 
literary and philosophical society's chambers and as she came through the door the barrel burst and it was on her head it was resting on her head she became the first person in europe to tra- to touch a platypus but only as it whacked her on the head uh, on its way to the floor <laughs> um but then so this these animals were it's, it was relatively whole in that respect but as you say other species certainly came by skin um some species were just sent as disc- you know not even with skins just as a description a written description or sometimes with a skin and a written description or a drawing and then people in Europe had to interpret what those what they thought the whole animal looked like based on the skins and drawings so if you think of my favorite example of this is echidnas so echidnas are the other egg-laying mammals they're spiny anteating relatives of platypuses and of platypuses they're also egg-laying um so they've got um some pretty unique adaptations and one of those is that their feet point backwards their back feet point backwards and this is it's really cool if you watch them move because it it looks completely different to any other animals that we know um but you know like hedgehogs are famously flea ridden because their spines work just as effectively against their own hands um as and mouths as yep. you know they would have predators um but echidnas which are also spiky have got around this problem by having really flexible joints and really long claws so they can groom themselves uh, but by twisting their back legs backwards up over their um backsides and into their like in, they can reach in between their shoulders with their feet anyway their feet point backwards and obviously that is not what most people in Europe expected to see so when they received skins uh, of these that had been sent from Australia they you know used their extensive anatomical knowledge of other animals and assumed that their feet should point in the same direction as their faces and so they twist them all around so pretty much every well let's say i reckon the majority of echidnas in europe have their feet pointing in the wrong direction because taxidermists didn't know what a whole echidna looked like and then people artists would base their drawings of echidnas on misshapen taxidermy and then other taxidermists would base their future taxidermy on those artists so it's it's just kind of repeating the same error over and over again so when we today experience echidnas in museums um which is probably the most common way for a european to encounter echidnas they don't appear in natural history documentaries um there is one in Sonic the Hedgehog Knuckles he's an echidna um I can't See, echidna I don't know which way his feet point um <laughs> but you know your museums are the, such a key way that we experience these animals but we're teaching people the wrong thing because they're based on inaccurate historic taxonomy your um twitter feed whenever you you go off there's there's often uh photos of uh flatopuses and fatopuses and then also echidnas in of, of assorted accuracy <laughs> Yeah, is that not what everyone does when they go to museums? <laughs> it um, is actually how, yeah. echidnas. That's what. Yeah, I mean that is what I do. Um, it's interesting. Yeah, <laughs> yeah one, I reckon honestly, the worst taxidermied animal in the world is echidnas, and echidnas and platypuses are a pretty close second. Yeah, yeah, it is interesting. It, it's reminding me a lot of um, thinking about how kids draw even very common animals like cats and and dogs at least when you first start out like all the animals have are drawn with the same legs kind of looking like human legs where they just kind of go straight down and then there's a, a foot that sticks out in the front um and so i guess that's like a, a an easier to relate to example is just thinking about that and how the joints on the legs of even cats and dogs the the are slightly counterintuitive because mm-hmm. um, they just don't bend in quite the same way that human like arms and legs do. Uh, and so if you apply that to 
uh, again, an animal that most adults won't have seen before, you'll apply the lens of animals that you are used to, to these unfamiliar animals. You make assumptions about them. Exactly um, that. Yeah. yeah. There's the inaccuracies, but then in your book, you also mentioned that there is this desire to make things fit the expectations that we have that led to like some quite dramatic alteration of the skins that people were getting to make them fit their expectations. Feet were like detached and then sewn on the other way. Well, like, yeah, with the echidnas, as I'm saying, they, they really twisted those feet around to the point that they ripped. And same with the, you know, same with the skeletons. So the skeletons really should only fit together in a jigsaw puzzle kind of way, in one way. But you find them that they have twisted them completely out of position. It's hard to understand why, quite how, like these taxonomists have great anatomical knowledge, but obviously just not a species they weren't familiar with. So it's, it's weird that they think, yeah, this is going to work. I can keep twisting, but this must be how it held its legs. And yeah. 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 So there's this physical side of um, sort of, I guess, mistranslation between Australia and here to make it, these animals fit anatomical expectations, but then there's kind of the taxonomic expectations that a lot of these uh, mammal groups were confounding as well. Um, could you talk to us a, a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. And again, this is probably best best told with platypuses and echidnas. So at the time, so 1792 was the first European echidna encounter, 1799, as I said, platypuses. Um, at the time, the, the Europe, Europe's understanding of how the natural world was put together was based on definitions of groups. Like, so every members of a group would have this list of characters. And in mammals, yep, that was fur, it was producing milk, and it was producing live babies. There were some skeletal characters too. Um, but when they encounter platypuses and echidnas, they have fur. So that's, you know, that's a mammal tick. Um, but they don't have nipples. So, it was some doubt over whether they could produce milk. And then looking at their reproductive systems, it seemed like they didn't produce live young. It seemed that they could possibly producing, be producing eggs. And those questions of milk, but particularly eggs in, in mammals, became some of the hottest debates of the 19th century. And not just because platypuses and echidnas were objectively interesting, just because, you know, these are beaked, toothless um, animals that are kind of a different shape to any other mammal but also because if a mammal can lay eggs that fundamentally changes how the natural world fits together if you like or how it's interrelated um, it's really clear evidence for evolution it's clear evidence that one group if they've got we might think of them as kind of transitional forms which which isn't how platypuses and echidnas actually operate but um laying eggs is a reptilian thing to do giving birth to live young is a mammalian thing to do but if you have a mammal that does egg laying then it suggests that evolution works right and that was a massive problem um for people who didn't want that to be true uh, particularly you know religious conservative naturalists so the most famous of those is richard owen who is the first superintendent of london's natural history museum who coined the word dinosaur he described a, a bunch of really famous uh, extinct animals um, he was the leading comparative anatomist of the time. He was very much fighting against the idea that platypuses could lay eggs, and, and I think precisely because of the reason that it, it produced, provided evidence for evolution. It was Owen himself that ended up proving that they produce milk, uh, which is interesting. They just don't have nipples. They, when they're lactating, they're, 
their milk glands actually cover most of the female's body, like right over our bellies and, and around, right round until covering, uh, going into her back. But people had just been catching platypuses that weren't breeding, weren't lactating, so they did have, they had really small milk glands. Yeah, he proved it, but he wouldn't accept the legs. And it took about 85 years until a Cambridge embryologist was sent to Australia to collect something like 1,400 echidnas and an unknown number of platypuses. Um, and that's a really interesting story because throughout those 85 years, people in Australia, including Indigenous um, Australians, were saying, yes, platypuses and echidnas lay eggs. But the people in Europe, who'd never seen the animals, were saying, no, that's not possible, you're wrong. Um, and it took kind of one of their own. It took a Cambridge. They'd only accept it when they heard it from you know, a Cambridge scientist, um, which, yeah, it's just, it's just smacks of that colonial superiority complex where Europe knows best. Yeah. We can't trust the, the things that you're telling us, like you must be mistaken or pulling our leg or something like yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. And there's also this sense throughout the book also that um, historically we, you had this sense of like the great chain of being, right? Where you've got, you can arrange all living things in this kind of ladder to, farther away from God and closer to God with humans, you know, the the step below God essentially, and then mammals and then descending from that. And at this point, I, I think that that kind of very hierarchical view was was shifting, but there was still some sense that mammals are kind of more evolved than like reptiles and fish. And then the, the marsupials arrive on the scene and kind of throw throw that into question, I guess, because they start blurring these these boundaries. Could you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, and and in and you know what you're talking about is hasn't gone away, right? So when we talk about these hierarchies, if you think of such a common term in natural history is that the higher primates are the great apes, you know, like and we're talking about higher we're talking about the great apes are allegedly humans, gorillas, chimpanzees, and orangs. Um whereas the lesser apes are the gibbons. Right. But that's like, that's hierarchical. <laughs> that's only because we're a member of the great apes that we've been calling ourselves great. Um, so I would advocate and so would my colleagues advocate that we call them, you know, large apes and small apes if we want to go make a, a distinction. Cause there is a, you know, there is an evolution distinction. Anyway, so that we're still talking those terms, but absolutely you're right. The, the, um, the 19th century descriptions, indeed 20th century descriptions very regularly would say, you know, this is the lowest form of mammal somewhere in between a reptile and the nobler mammals such as ourselves. Um, so they were instantly placing uh, the egg-laying mammals and the marsupials on, on this hierarchy as something lesser where they've made the animals they were familiar with in Europe and North America as the zoological standard. And because, they, because marsupials and, and egg-laying mammals differed from that European standard, they were just assumed to be inferior to it. Um, which again is, you know, it's exactly how they framed people in pretty much every area that was colonized in the world, but certainly in Australia. Anything that's different is definitely considered to be worse by the colonizers. There's also, I guess, some, some sense that certain traits are better than others. I guess it's a common misconception that develops from the way in which we talk about evolution, where we think of like things animals that arrive on the scene in the fossil record, I guess, like more recently or somehow they're more advanced or they're more evolved. They're like better in some sense. And then animals that 
have a, a longer history in the fossil record that look very similar to their their fossil relations today. There's some sense in which they're kind of just clinging on these ancient holdouts from way back in the day. Where, where do the platypuses sit in that kind of picture? Well, so there's so many things to say about platypuses there. The first, I mean, the first is to say, yeah, kind of in support of that worldview, if you like, the uh, platypuses and echidnas' ancestors split from the marsupial and placental mammals, we are placental mammals, and so are most mammals, so you know, rodents, antelope, um, bats, are all placental mammals. These are the ones that give birth to live young and don't have the external gestation in, in a pouch. Yeah, so the big, the big difference between placentals and marsupials is that placentals give birth after a relatively long pregnancy and then do a little bit of infant growth, um, suckling milk on a teat, Marsupials do the opposite. So they have a relatively short pregnancy and they do most of their instant gro- infant growth um, sucking milk on a teat. Um, um, and, and the egg-laying mammals, they eggs. So those are the three kinds of mammals. So egg-laying mammals, if you like, the, the ancestors of living egg-laying mammals split off before the ancestors of platypuses and echidnas. So that is why they get called an ancient group. But technically, there's a split, right? So there's one one fork in the tree goes to the ancestors of platypuses and echidnas, and one fork in the tree goes to the ancestors of marsupials and, and placentals. That fork is at a point in time. So the two groups are therefore from that point the same age, right? So one isn't right. more advanced than the other. What really comes into it is is who looks the most primitive from a really subjective point of view. Um, so who has the most ancient primitive traits? So the word we're really circling around here is primitive. Yeah. So platypuses and echidnas and marsupials for less justifiable reasons, though none of the reasons are justifiable, um, less logical reasons, if you like, get called primitive. <clears throat> and the reason is that we have decided that egg laying is primitive. And this confuses the notion of a primitive evolutionary trait with a primitive species. And no living species can be considered primitive because everything that alive, is alive today has gone through the same amount of evolution, if you like. But we call things a primitive trait if they are inherited from an ancient ancestor without modification. So people look at platypuses and echidnas and say they have inherited egg laying and they have not changed it. Whereas, you know, the first, so the first mammals evolved from a kind of reptile-like ancestor. So if you think Dimetrodon is the big sail-backed, big sail-backed beast that you find in packets of toy dinosaurs, but is in fact not a dinosaur, it's an ancestor of mammals. They lay eggs, so the first mammals lay eggs, Platypus and echidnas still lay eggs. Egg laying is considered a primitive trait. However, like so, we have so many primitive traits. We, like in the book, I talk about you know, legs. Our legs are a primitive trait because we evolved them from, we inherited them from our fishy ancestors. But we don't talk about legs as primitive because we have them um, yeah. and we're biased towards us. And similarly, so, you know, platypus and echidnas inherited eggs from their reptile like ancestors. Whereas birds also inherited eggs from their reptilian ancestors, the dinosaurs, but we don't call egg laying in birds primitive. So it's all it's all completely subjective, right? And, and then of course there's the um, value judgments that are on top of a word like primitive, where to say if you call someone a person primitive, that's not that's you know that's not flattery, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. And, and so the, these words have these loaded meanings and 
even though in scientific literature they might be used in a particular way with very specific meanings, often that specif- specific meaning doesn't carry through to common usage. Instead, what we get is the value judgments that are in common usage get attached onto these words and things. In your book, you mention the potential consequences of using this kind of value-laden judgment uh, when we're talking about these animals. Could you talk to us a, a little bit about like what are the potential consequences of have there been of using this kind of language? Absolutely. Platypus is a, a almost universally described as the world's strangest animal. So in, a, in an affectionate way, I think, people describe them as weird and wonderful. And, and as you say, all of Australian mammals, but also wildlife in general, gets tarred with this weird and wonderful brush. And I think people are using that in their heads in an enthusiastic way. Uh, people think, yeah, weird is cool. But I do think it has some pretty se- serious consequences because if we just think of, if we are painting these animals to be kind of weird little evolutionary curiosities rather than fantastically well-adapted uh, species that deserve our respect in their own right, then it, it conditions us to frame them in a certain way psychologically. And if you throw into that this idea of primitiveness, you come to this point where Australian animals are started to be viewed as being at fault for their own extinction. So I guess at this point we should say that Australia has the world's worst extinction rate for mammals anywhere. Um, so since that date of European invasion, 1788, more animals have gone extinct in Australia than any other large landmass. So sorry, more mammals have gone extinct in Australia than any other large landmass. Um, it's 30, I think 37% of all of the extinctions in the world of mammals since 1788 have happened in Australia. So Australia is the world's worst place to be a mammal, which is a shame because it has the world's best mammals. Um, so I kind of in the book, I say, I'm not saying that one thing follows the other, but painting Australian animals as these little evolutionary curiosities, dead ends, primitive, bizarre, really doesn't help framing those things. Now, Australian animals are not at fault for their own extinction, but it becomes psychologically much more acceptable to us to go around Australia cutting down trees and, you know, inducing climate change and changing the fire management practices, introducing cats, foxes, rabbits, ferrets, squirrels, uh, hares, three kinds of antelope, three kinds of deer, you know, pigs, donkeys, uh, cane toads that have absolutely devastated the landscape there. So through all of this, people are saying, you know, it's, it's a shame throughout the 18th century, 19th century, even today, it's a shame, but they're just, they can't compete in the face of these, you know, superior beings from the north. But honestly, to, you know, to cut down a koala's tree and then blame it for going extinct is obviously ludicrous, right? Yeah. <laughs> if, we frame them, if, we, if we frame it as, oh, it's their fault, it takes the blood off of our hands, I guess. That, is, that isn't how it worked. <laughs> Yeah, 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 and and closer to home here, I think there have been some uh, some recent studies from like bird surveys that have come out that look at bird populations within the UK and I think across Europe as well. And basically, generalist bird species seem to be doing kind of okay, and it's the more specialist ones which are declining in large part due to human action. But you you can kind of see this thread of thinking where, oh, these are really highly specialized animals, so they're just not as well adapted to this modern world 
and and so they're going to go extinct and again yeah you're you're right there's a a sense in which it kind of lessens our responsibility for creating the changes that are leading to these population declines and extinction because we can kind of blame it on the animals right they're too specialized or in this case like oh they have all these primitive traits of course they can't stand up to modern life because you know and modern animals like how older technology gave way to modern technology there's a similar line of thinking there that you, that could be applied yeah it's cra- it's absolutely crazy so, you know perhaps the most or certainly the most famous extinct australian animal is the cider scene you know people got tasmanian tiger but they weren't they weren't tigers don't um, really look like tigers at all either they don't look like, they, <laughs> I mean, they, they look like stripy wolves they're an amazing example of convergent evolution where wolves and thylacines evolved i would say i'd say pretty much identical anatomies um to do the same ecological task and when europeans invaded they only lived in tasmania now, all these accounts are like oh yeah this you know this this beast is going extinct. It's, it's the most stupid animal. It's, um, it, it's this primitive, vicious, savage beast. And like, yeah, it's, it's being at fault for its own extinction, ignoring the fact that the, the Europeans introduced bounties to it in 1830, private bounties initially, and then government bounties killed the government bounty in 30 years, killed nearly 3,000 of them. And there were probably only 3,000 at most on the island when Europeans invaded. Uh, and yeah, it wasn't that that killed them. It was the, uh, it was their, you know, their own stupidity and their own primitiveness and their savageness. Um, yeah, it's, it's absolutely absurd. So, so you mentioned collecting, and I wanted to maybe cir- circle back to that point as well. You've recently been doing some work on looking at correspondence of these historical collectors and actually having a look at a deeper look at this history of collecting in a human social sense, giving a bit more credit where credit is due, especially in terms of like expertise, I think. The research I've been doing and others is that you know Wallace brought back eight thousand birds from the Malay Archipelago, but if you read his travel log of the voyage, it's clear that he wasn't collecting most of them. It was these Malay teenagers, particularly uh, a young man called Ali and another called Badaroon, who collected probably most, but certainly many of uh, Wallace's birds. And we've got those birds that Ali and Badaroon collected here, and we're trying to tell. And it's amazing because it's so rare. That you have stories of have field field collectors, local collectors, and indigenous collectors. Um, you actually have their names, and even in Ali's case, a photograph um, that we can say these people are also responsible for history of science. Um, so that's the kind of work I'm trying to do. In in Australia, it's been so like finding names has been the problem. You know, I can say this collection wasn't collected by this European; it was actually collected by 
women for the, from the Arenti group in Central Australia, for example, but I have no names at all. And that's the really frustrating part of the story, but it's an important part of the story. It's how natural history was done. Absolutely. I, I think it's, that's just a, a wonderful, especially in the cases where we have those named individuals, but even in other cases to, for museums to start just acknowledging the local expertise that led to the building of those collections would be really, really different from what I've seen in most other places. And in some cases, we're not going to be able to have like the named uh, individuals anymore that that information is just lost or was never known. Like, is it a heroic European tromping around through tropical rainforests, actually like laying traps and hunting for these things? Or do they get local expert hunters who they do this for their living and take advantage of their expertise? Yeah. And it's, I mean, I mean it's, it's so obvious as well. That it, should, you know, um, it shouldn't really have been taking us so long to be looking for these people. Yeah. 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 You touched on it a little bit earlier about the fact that museum collecting is a small part of like taking animals from the wild, I guess. Uh, the numbers collected are usually, anyways, not vast. What are differences between modern ways in which museum collections now develop versus how they have in the past? Sure. So uh, first to say is it is significantly better than it was in the past. I hope that's reassuring for people. Um, and there is genuine acknowledgement that um, a, you know, a nation, sovereign nation, owns its diversity, its biodiversity, and the indigenous knowledge that is attached to it. And there are, there are legal frameworks, particularly the Nagoya Protocol and the Convention on Biological Diversity, that legislate for those internationally. And they are you know, rigid rules um, that basically says, you know, you can't just, you can't, in fact, you know, if you and I go on holiday to France, we can't just pick up a shell. Actually, you can't just pick up a shell on the beach and, you know, exploit it, take it home and turn it into something. Um, although, you know, realistically, the legislation isn't enacted at that level. But that, you know, if you yeah. were to then... <laughs> um, that, that is what the legislation is about. It's about protecting uh, a country's commercial interests in its diversity and that might sound overly well commercial might sound overly pecuniary but that is you know that's what we're really talking about here is who gets to benefit from um from a country's genetic resources and indigenous knowledge in fact you know having my hand this isn't helpful on a podcast but having my hand a permit between some scientists and you know mali a country uh, malawi sorry um for collecting fish in the 80s uh that, you know, we've got, it's like, we're saying this is, this says we're, these fish are being useful for science. It's a collaboration between this country. But yeah, by, by and large, when people are out collecting, so the collections that we add to our museum in Cambridge are mostly historic. So it's mostly people saying, I have my grandfather's insect collection. Um, and it's, you know, thousands of species and thousands of specimens, incredibly valuable, valuable for scientific research, got great data. Our first question will always be, is every part of its life history legal and ethical? Because if not, museums can't take it and shouldn't mm -hmm. take it. Um, you know, with those historic collections, rightly or wrongly, those laws and ethics uh, are often not in, in place. For really modern collection, it's far more common for an institution to go out in partnership, so an institution from Europe, say, to go out in partnership to with, with in-country organisations, so universities or museums in other countries or partner up with you know researchers from other parts of the world and they'll go out collecting together they'll do the science together 
And very, very often, all of the collections then end up in the host country, in the home country. It's now increasingly less common that the specimens have been taken out of country permanently because there's means to keep them in country. Which is quite a, a shift, right? Where initially you Europeans would, when they show up in a country, they would collect things and it would all come back to a, a European museum. And I guess none of that expertise or any of the science that came out of it would would happen locally. So the locals essentially don't don't benefit from from the science that comes out of it. They they might have a, a tiny benefit in terms of like I'm going to hire you as a guide to go out and like hunt stuff for me. But the ongoing benefit in the past hasn't accrued to the to the locals. Whereas nowadays that's a very different picture. Yeah, exactly. And I mean not to say that it's perfect and that, you know, parachute science is, is as we call it is, is a thing but it's being it is very much frowned upon so that's when you know that is literally it. when you go into a country you parachute in you exploit information environments people and then you just extract it all uh, it, i'm not saying it doesn't happen but it's significantly less common so i mean you've mentioned a permit about collecting fish and um there's collecting of of insects and invertebrates those are generally my understanding is that those groups of animals are treated rather differently usually than than vertebrates and collecting of particularly mammals could you talk to us uh, to me a bit, a bit about that like are what are yeah. are there ways in which collecting mammals is like a bit different nowadays I mean, right, from how it, it is treated differently right so yeah um, you could one could certainly make an, an ethical uh, argument that it is no different to kill a beetle than it is to kill a wombat um i don't know if i would make that argument but it's so much rarer to add mammals to collections than anything else and it's kind of interesting because we do still need physical collections um but absolutely it doesn't happen in anything like the scale and in fact the vertebrates like bird collections grow at a significantly faster rate than mammal collections i don't know when we last acquired a wild caught mammal here it's not in my time here anyway there is it's, it's super controversial still like so there's this famous story from the last few years of researchers, I think it was in Guadalcanal in the Solomon Islands, had been researching the moustached kingfisher. And this is a bird that only lives on this one island. And it had only, it is only known in Europe by two museum specimens. And they're both female. They're both collected last century. Um, and this research group was out, out, uh, on a, you know, on a partnership project with local government, uh, local communities and, um, this European research group studying the mustached kingfisher. And they made this big press release story about this is the, they, they managed to record a load of different groups of these birds. Um, they managed to film them and they put this press release out saying, you know, this is the first time the species has ever been recorded. It's really exciting. We're getting to learn a lot more about it. And they kind of incidentally mention, oh, and we've now got the first ever male specimen in the collection. And like it, it absolutely blew up in their faces that people were saying, like the press went to town on them and saying, you know, it's absolutely unbelievable that you've, um, that you've killed one of these incredibly rare birds. And, you know, did you read the, the scientists' responses? And you can clearly see that they're like, they're genuinely emotionally hurt by these accusations because nobody, like, these newspaper people, you know, they've never even heard of this bird, right? These are people who've dedicated their lives to 
understanding and protecting them. They've made these, they say, you know, we made these decisions to kill this one bird uh, with the local communities. And now we are so much better able to, to protect it because we can study it a lot more. But more important than that, he, he kind of turned the lens back on the reader to say, if you're really worried about these, uh, these populations of birds, first thing to say is they are rare, but they're only rare from a, you know, rare doesn't mean not known well by Europeans. Like these birds are doing fine. They just have a very limited range. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're really worried about them, what's threatening them isn't me killing, killing one of these birds. You know, not me, this researcher. Um, killing one. Even I'm nervous about being tired with this. Yeah. Um, what's actually killing them is that, uh, you know, industrial development is cutting down their forest in order to um, supply uh, the uh, precious metals that are in your smartphones and they're being cut down for, you know, oil and fossil fuels, which is how the world lives its life. So, you know, it's just really turning the mirror on the reader for, you know, what was a personal attack against the scientists. My, my point in telling all this is the people who are doing natural history care a hell of a lot more about natural history than, you know, most people. <laughs> and I think they do deserve a great deal of trust in whether they think killing one specimen will, um, will make a, a positive or negative difference to, to those birds. You know, we, our museum collections are the world's, where, world's best evidence base for environmental change over the last 200, 300 years. Um, the only way we can understand climate change, biodiversity loss, other massive scale environmental changes is by looking what's happened over the last two, 300 years of industrial development. And that story is in our museum collections. No human can remember as far back as the museums can. So we need to keep adding slowly and ethically to those collections so that those you know, people in a hundred years time can answer the same questions that we're looking at at our hundred years. So very long answer to the question of we still need to add collections. Mammals, it's extremely rare, but you know, it needs to happen because it's uh, how we understand the world. And and we lose, there's information that cannot be recorded through those ways, like video traps and camera traps and that kind of thing. It does, it can't record everything, right? Like we, we don't know about environmental toxicity of, you know, industrial processes. That's not going to be captured in a photograph. But if we have physical remains, then we can do test chemical testing on those physical remains. We can do genetic testing on those remains. Like, yeah. And who knows what future technology, as you mentioned, that's that's one of the the points of having and preserving a museum collection is it's for the future. And we don't know what technologies we're going to come up with to make use of these collections. But the the job of us who work in museums now is to preserve them for those future whatever developments. Exactly. The people who collected the specimens 100 years ago that we're studying now had absolutely no idea what, what people today would be doing with them. You know, you talk about environmental pollute, you know, environmental chemicals. So you know, the, the world's, it turns out, the best um, data set, the best piece of evidence for changing levels of black carbon in North America over the last 200 years, you know the story, I'm sure, is environmental pollutants that were found on the skins of historic birds in North American museum collections. So there's this massive study that looked at how, like, so we're talking about, you know, birds are flying around picking up carbon particles on their feathers. And people today are looking at these birds that were collected 100 years ago and, you know, um, you know over a period of 100 years, to say how have those 
carbon levels changed and there's no other repository for that information. There's no better repository for that information than on these bird skins. And so that's how they've understood how the you know North, North American pollution levels have changed is by looking at dead birds, which yeah, yeah, people we still what we still need to add to those series is what I think we're both saying. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and and then I guess circling back to to like why mammals in particular and sort of vertebrates are are often well, I guess non aquatic vertebrates maybe because mm-hmm. fish are also treated quite differently but there's there is something about the fact that the people who study these and are thinking about adding something to the collection there's there is careful consideration for whether or not it's going to have an impact on the overall population and when you think insects and things like that they just breed at such a prodigious volume generally that you know collecting one or two individuals is not going to make a difference when a single individual can have hundreds of you know eggs in a year yeah, and I think that's, I mean, more, I think that's all true, but I think there's probably also just a, a psychological element, rightly or wrongly, that isn't very scientific, but is important because we are people and people aren't very scientific. Um, but you know, like physically killing a, you know, primate or a wombat, as say, is, is very different and you need, <laughs> you need, to, like, that's not an easy thing to do. Um, yeah, it certainly has very different emotional resonance like and you yeah you have to really justify it yourself um i would imagine to, to, to say i'm doing good for science here and i don't think many people would do that lightly yeah yeah definitely that that wraps up all the questions that i had but there's a ton more information about these kinds of themes of course in your book platypus matters did you have a final lesson that you hope folks take away from reading your book yeah, Platypus Matters is essentially, it's first and foremost, a celebration of the amazing things that all Australian mammals do, not just platypuses. Um, and it just tells some stories from life in the fields. I spent a lot of time in field work with them and things that we've learned in museums, but also the history of how we've came to know them, which is what we've been talking about. But the kind of the takeaway message, I guess, is, is let's drop the, let's drop the weird from weird and wonderful. Let's celebrate these animals as if they came from any other part of the world where the animals are not treated and not framed the same way as they are in Australia. So it's, it's, you know, it's, that's the message is these animals are incredible and they deserve our respect. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Jack, for taking the time to, to talk to me today. Pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. That was my episode with Jack Ashby about his recent book, Platypus Matters. For more about anything that we talked about in this episode, you can of course pick up a copy of his book, or you can also visit the podcast website at knowingnature.cc, where you'll find full show notes, including links to articles and related reading that will help you dig deeper into any of the topics that we talked about on the show. As ever, you can send in your questions or comments or suggestions for future episodes to the email address, which is knowingnaturepodcast at gmail.com. And thank you very much for listening.